Good morning. Isaiah chapter 16, first five verses. Send to the Lamb, to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, and so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab, and be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. As we get into our uh, study this morning, making our way, we're, we're in that portion of Isaiah that is dealing from chapters 13 to 23 with Isaiah pronouncing judgment on the surrounding nations. A good part of, of the book of Isaiah is dealing just with Jerusalem and Israel. But in this section here, uh, we're primarily focusing on the judgments of, uh, as we went through a Wednesday night, Syria, Moab, uh, Philistia. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, Tyre and uh, Ammon. But one of the things that we want to glean, and I tried to make this point and stress it on Wednesday night, is that in a chapter like this, we can have uh, the judgment of Moab as the key theme, but not with the first five verses. And to give you a feel of, of where I'm heading this morning, one of the main things I want you to, to grab a hold of as we make our way through the Bible uh, let me just give you one example and have you flip over to Isaiah 61 because we're all pretty familiar with it. And I'll show you what I mean. Lane also, when he was giving his study on Lucifer, uh, which he did a great job on, by the way, um, the chapter in Ezekiel 28 deals with the prince of Tyre. That literally happened. There was a, um, a man who was the ruler of Tyre, and he was a prince. But then in the middle of the chapter, and he says, no, I want to speak to the king of Tyre. And he says, you were in the garden of Eden, and every precious stone was your covering. Well, all of a sudden, we're not talking about the prince of Tyre. We're talking about somebody completely different here. Actually calls him the anointing cherub who covers, uh, perfect in beauty and wisdom. And it's a reference to Lucifer. My point is simple, that in one chapter, you have two completely different personalities and a great deal of time difference between the Garden of Eden and that prophecy given at that time. Now, another example of it is in Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus pointed to this as really his first Bible study, when after being baptized in the Holy Spirit and being in the wilderness, he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he finds the prophet of Isaiah. He actually turned to this verse right here, and this is what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because the Lord has anointed uh, me to preach good tidings to the poor. Uh, to He has set me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are who are bound, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And there's a comma there, right in the middle of a sentence. At that point, Jesus closed the scroll. He handed it back to the person, and he said, Today, in your hearing, this is fulfilled. But I want you to notice that he stopped, that he didn't finish the sentence, and the day of vengeance of our God. That is not going to happen, and it still hasn't happened yet. But my point is, even in a sentence, you can have a gap of more than 2,000 years. And you, you need, as we make our way through the Bible, and especially for our study this morning, you'll see that this is um, um, very, very common, and that most of this chapter that we'll look at this morning, after verse 6, is all about a judgment that's literally going to be fulfilled in three years. These five verses that we just read will not be fulfilled and have not been fulfilled as of yet. But they give us a lot of detail as we uh, watch certain events unfold. Now, we read here in the first couple of chapters that the Lord is actually asking Moab to hide, it says, the outcast. I'm going to put something on the screen so you can get a little better perspective of Edom and where it is. So the first one here is a picture of the Middle East. You can see Israel there. And then we have Selah in verse 1 is another name for Petra. Um, all of Edom, Moab, and Ammon. I actually flew in Ammon. It's the capital of uh, Jordan. All these three ancient nations today comprise what we would call Jordan. And Selah... Another name for it is Petra, and we have it by Mount Seir there, and this would have been the land of Moab. Um, we could get, tell other stories like uh, Ruth was a Moabitess, and when there was a famine, Naomi and her husband went to Moab, and they were there, married uh, Moab, Moabite girls, and when the famine was over, they came back to Bethlehem. Well, that was a great love story, and it's all about Ruth. We could talk about Balaam and Balak, and right before they entered the promised land. Um, this area here is also the area where uh, Nebo is. It's where Moses would have been in that area, looking into the promised land, but not able to go in. It's a, it's a huge mountain range when you're on the Israel side, looking over from the Dead Sea. When you look to that side, uh, it's very, very tall mountains that look down over. And as we begin our study this morning, I just want to point out that what it, the Lord is asking Moab, even though they're about to be judged very severely by Assyria. Now, Assyria is the nation at this time that is extremely powerful. They were extremely cruel. I would liken them to ISIS, having no pity or sympathy whatsoever. And um, what we're reading this morning is yet future, but if you look at verse um, 14, um, the Lord says, But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be uh, dis dis 
despised and all the great multitudes and the remnant will be very small and feeble. What I'm saying is simply this. We have two things going on here. And these verses right here, it's a prophecy. Actually, this was a prophecy when Isaiah spoke it. Because he says in three years it's going to happen, and in three years it did happen. And Assyria, uh, the terminology here is they, they wiped it clean, like sort of like a broom. This is complete devastation. And that's verses 6 through 14. But in verses 1 through 5, he's prophesying very much in the same way that Jesus was prophesying when he said uh, he picked up the prophecy of uh, Isaiah 61. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, that wasn't fulfilled for over, to, over the next uh, 700 years. And so as we look at this, the question arises, who are the outcast? And um, where is the place that they are to... Uh, be protected from, well, the place that they are it's referring to is Moab, but in particular, a place called Selah. And um, as we go through this this morning, um, the spoiler is a reference to the Antichrist, and uh, we're going to go so, sort of through a chronology that leads up to this passage being fulfilled. And as we get started this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 24, and as we look at the fulfillment of this, who are the outcasts? Well, the outcast is a reference to the Jewish people, and the first event that is going to trigger these events is the rapture of the church. After the rapture of the church, uh, the world will be in chaos the Middle East, we're seeing the stage being set for that. And then in the book of Daniel, uh, verse 27, um, there's a reference to the Antichrist where it says that he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. The he there is a reference to the Antichrist. And basically he's saying, I'm going to make a peace treaty with the nation of Israel for one seven-year period of time. And then he says, but in the middle of that week. In other words, after three and a half years, he will bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. Well, there's a lot of implication here. It means the Jews have a temple again. It means that they've reinstituted sacrifice. Uh, they, they're well aware, if you're going to hold the Old Testament teaching under the law, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And when it, it comes around time for Yom Kippur, there's no sacrifice. So the rabbis say, well, just go and be very contrite and confess your sins, so on and so forth. No. Any good rabbi knows without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins if you're a Jew trying to live under the law. So their desire to have that is there. And, but then it says he will bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abomination shall be one who is made desolate, even unto the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. It's a prophecy. Now, of that week as yet future, but it's one of 490 weeks. 483 of them have been fulfilled when Jesus came. But the clock stopped back then, and I'll talk about that in just a little bit. The clock is about to start again, and the seven-year period of time is about to begin. After the rapture, this is what happens. Now, Jesus comments, if you're in Matthew 24, 
Jesus comments about this event because the disciples came out and asked him straight out, Lord, what's it going to be like towards the end? Picking it up in verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and then in parentheses, a few places you see this, whoever reads, let him understand. In other words, it's going to take a little work. You better understand Daniel and what the abomination of desolation actually is. It's when the Antichrist stops the the sacrifices, he breaks the covenant, and um, at that time he declares war. Um, The biggest and the only card, and I think Lane made a point of this when talking about Lucifer, the last card that he has to play is to destroy the Jewish people. And this is going to be his attempt. Matthew 24 is Jesus giving instructions that when that event takes place, he's now telling them what to do. And so he reads, let them who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So we're talking about Jerusalem and Israel in in particular. And he says, don't let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of the house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those women who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be on the winter and on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor nor ever shall be. Let me just do a little sidetrack here. For those that hold to a preterist view, or a kingdom now theological view, they try to put all of the prophecies that would be yet future in at 70 AD, at this time right here. And um, they're very, very dogmatic about it. And the easiest way to um, explain that their theology is wrong is verse 21. Because this verse says that it's going to be the worst time that the world has ever been, Nothing before it, nor nothing after it. Now, indeed, a couple hundred thousand people died, according to Josephus, in um, in 70 AD when the Romans did take it. But it didn't compare to the Holocaust. And so this was not fulfilled at that time. And a lot of times they'll read up to verse 20, and then they'll skip all the way down to verse 27. I've seen it done more than once, because you just simply can't get around it. But the Lord says, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And um, so what we have here is simply Jesus giving instructions. When you see that event take place, run for the hills, flee. Now, Paul speaks of this event in Second Thessalonians. Uh, the order of it, he says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, the great tribulation, except there coming a falling away first, the apostasy, and then the man of sin, that's the Antichrist, be revealed the son of perdition. Now he exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself to be God. More detail that Jesus talks about here in verse 15 about the abomination of desolation. Well, what is it? 
is the Antichrist going into the temple proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul talks about it. Jesus gives instructions to the Jews what to do when, when it happens. Now, Isaiah 16 actually tells us way where they run to. And this is where um, the Old Testament is so important because it gives us more clarity and brings to us greater um, understanding of the end time events and how they're going to unfold. So Isaiah 16 tells us where? Moab, in Jordan. I want you to turn um, with me to the book of Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, again, is one of those chapters that talks up to verse 35 about different events that are going to take place that were um, already fulfilled in history. But when you get to verse 36, all of a sudden it changes, and now the subject is the Antichrist in the last days and the wars that unfold uh, that lead up to the battle of Armageddon. I'm interested in, I'll just read verse 36, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He will speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. He's talking about his outcome there. And then he, he talks about his campaign, uh, the Antichrist and his war. So picking it up in verse 40, part of the war is going to involve Egypt and armies from the north. So in verse 40, he gets a report, the Antichrist does, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries and overwhelm them and pass through. Now verse 41. He will also enter the glorious land, Israel, and many countries will be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Again, this is Jordan. So when the Lord says, run for the hills, the Lord already knows that he set aside Jordan as a place of sanctuary for his people. Now, unfortunately, there's uh, going to be many that aren't going to make it. But um, at this point, I need you to uh, turn to the book of Revelation chapter 12 as we piece this together this morning. Chapter 12 talks about this event. And again, I'm glad uh, Lane did have a, um, um, a study on Lucifer. Because in chapter 12, we find that he's in heaven, verse 7, and war breaks out. You've heard of Star Wars. Well, these are angel wars. And we, we find that the devil and his angels fought against uh, Michael and his angels, and the devil and his angels lost. We're told that Lucifer is cast down to the ground, the devil, Satan. And um, then we find that once he is cast down, verse 12 says, he knows, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Well, how much of a short time? 
I believe this is in the middle of the the week, and um, he has three and a half years left. And he knows the scriptures well. Remember how he quoted them to Jesus on the Mount of Temptation? Oh, he knows he knows his Bible well. And um, the good news is we do too, <laughs> and we know what happens to him. So we want to say Amen to that. And I'll just. Nothing's going to change this. It's going to be one of my main points this morning. What is written is written. And nothing, no how, no way, no power, can change what has been written here. So as we read what happens next in verse 13, notice where Satan, when he's cast down, what's his focal point? Who is he after? For when the dragon saw that he had been cast down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that would be Israel, who gave birth to the male child, which would be Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. Is there symbolism in the book of Revelation? Of course. And a lot of people use it for excuses not to study it. Well, sounds like an airplane to me. And it's just symbolism and one means of escape. Uh, And when... She has nourished for a time and a times and a half a times. That's another way of saying three and a half years. Time, singular, one year. Times, plural, two years. Two plus one is three and a half a time. Three and a half years. For the serpent spewed out from his mouth like a flood after the woman, water, and it might cause her to be carried away by the flood, But the earth helped the woman and opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon who was enraged with the woman uh, went to make war with the rest of the offspring who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, here's a scenario. Three and a half years left. The abomination of desolation takes place. Lucifer is cast to the earth. He has one objective, and that is to destroy the Jewish people. So what does Jesus say? Head for the hills. And in Isaiah, he said, hide my outcast from the spoiler. Be a shelter from them. That's why I've entitled the morning's message, Shelter from the Storm. They're supernaturally protected. Daniel 11 tells us Moab, Abin, and Edom, which make up modern-day Jordan, is going to be that sanctuary for them. And um, I want to show it to you this morning. Petra exists to this day. It's the major tourist attraction in Jordan. Um, Some of you are familiar from it, from Indiana Jones and and the Treasures of the... whatever that movie was. Anyway, here's... um, When we were there, I've been there several times. Here's what it looks like when you... Enter into Petra. This picture right here is the probably the most prominent and famous of all of um, the structures at Petra. That's really not Petra. Those are cross-references right there. And I'm killing time because I'm wondering what they're doing in the back room. Come on, guys. All right. They're working on it. We had it down. There it is right there. Very narrow passageway that as we enter into it, but I was so surprised when I saw it for the first time because all of a sudden um, it expands into this city. 
And I'm gonna, I'll show you some of the more popular pictures. All of these, go to number two guys. All of these is a, um, an area and all of the structures are carved out of stone. Uh, no buildings, Every, all the houses are actually embedded in the rock. Go to number three, it gives you another, these are all homes that would have existed at one time. Number four, another picture of the dwellings, and we walked for hours just walking through it. And uh, just to show that um, how just how huge it is, we had a Bible study at the amphitheater. And here's a picture of the, of the amphitheater. Petra is there to this day. It is in chapter 16, verse 1, called Selah. Another reference to it would be Basra. And um, the purpose and the reason that the Lord is keeping this remnant is um, because they have not repented from their sin of not receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm working my way up to that. There's a reason that he is protecting one-third of the remnant of Israel. So I got this from uh, J.M. Arkell's. This, these were in the news bites on, on Wednesday evening. She says, it's back. Mein Kampf returns to Germany. Uh, mein Kampf, Hitler's notorious writings about his political ideology, out of print since the 40s, has returned to print in Germany, with some lauding the accomplishments as a way to understand better the Nazi thinking and agenda. Others say it's just bunk. Our friend Jan Markell of Olive Tree Ministries worked with Holocaust survivor Anita Dittman. We've had Anita here. Uh, to create a book and movie, both uh, titled Trapped in Hitler's Hell, that describes the era in Germany. Will the ghost of Adolf Hitler never die, she told the World Net Daily. Like, likely not, as anti-Semitism anti never dies. Satan keeps it alive as he thinks he can actually destroy the Jewish people and upset, excuse me, <clears throat> upset the end-time plan of God. He will be surprised. He can harm the apple of God's eye, but he can't destroy them. So what's going to happen is in Zechariah chapter 13, I need you to turn there. Zechariah is really close to the end of uh, the Old Testament, right before Malachi. Zechariah chapter 13 when Jesus said, um, these are hard, hard scriptures for me to read because I know it's going to happen because they're, they're scripture. But concerning when it says in Revelation 12 that he couldn't get into Petra, he couldn't get his hands on them, a third of them make it. How do I know that? Because then it says he left and he returned to make war with the woman, remember? All right, well, this is what happens. Jerusalem is going to fall after he's unsuccessful. And when Jesus tells him to head for the hills, go to Moab, 
Well, here in Zechariah 13, verse 8, it said, It will come to pass in the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds of it shall fall, cut off, and die. Now, that's hard to say. And we're talking about the Jewish people here. But one-third shall be left in it. Well, where are they? Well, there, that's Isaiah 16. O Moab, Selah, Petra. Hide the outcasts, be a shelter for them, protect them from the spoiler, the Antichrist. I will bring one-third through the fire. In other words, he's still dealing with them. We're all familiar with the terminology, right? I'm going through a fiery trial. I'm going through a real burner right now. Well, God is dealing with them. And the question is, why? It says, while refining them as silver is refined and casts them as gold and and test them as gold is tested. And when he's done that, notice what happens in verse, the rest of verse 9. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord, he is my God. Now, um, I would like for you to turn with me at this time to the book of Hosea. I'm going to give you a chance to find that. It's one of the minor prophets. And while you're turning, let me tell you what Jesus said, his final words to Israel. First of all, in John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 11, it said, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Here he was, their Messiah, their long-awaited Messiah. And when he actually showed up on the scene, uh, they didn't receive him. And he said in Luke 19, you should have known this was the day. This was your day to make your peace, but you wouldn't do it. Another place he says, oh, how I long to gather you, just like a a mother hen desires and protects her, her little chicks. That's what I wanted to do for you. He says, but you would not. Jesus said in Luke 13, 35, See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel's not at that place today, gang. As a matter of fact, it's going to take this, this uh, trying and testing of fear for their lives, hiding out in Moab and Jordan and Petra where they eventually get to the place where they are forgiven of the one sin that God holds them accountable to. And that's prophesied for us in Hosea chapter 5, picking it up in the last verse of chapter 15. He says, I will return to my place. This can only be the Lord when he went back to heaven from the Mount of Olives. I will return to my place. Notice, until they acknowledge their offense, their sin. Notice that it's not plural, not sins. It's a particular sin. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will be diligently seeking me. The purpose of the great tribulation is not only to judge the wicked, but also to bring Israel to that place 
where Jesus said, you're not going to see me again until you get to a place where you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now read chapter 6, verse 1. Now Israel says, come, let's return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he'll heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. When? After two days, he will revive us. What does it say in Peter? One day is like a thousand years with the Lord and a thousand years as a day. How long has the Lord been gone for? A couple thousand years. Or you could say a couple days. Here, the terminology is, after 2,000 years, he'll revive us. And on the third day, here we have another 1,000 years, which is a millennium. He will rise us up that we may live in his sight. So what's being implied here is when the pressure is put on so much, as they're being protected from the spoiler in Petra, in Jordan, that they finally get to the place, probably through the witnessing of... of uh, um, Moses and Elijah and 144,000, explaining the scriptures to them, opening them up, and some of them even being prepared to know what to do even before it happens. Um, we find that they call on the name of the Lord. And guess what? Well, he shows up. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63 just imagine it this way. Let's say they meet in that amphitheater. And we say, hey, we get it. We, we had to be tested. We had to be tried. We had to be broken. How many of us had to be tried, had to go through the fire, had to be broken before we said, help, Lord? And that's what happens here. And as a nation, this remnant, they call out on the Lord, and he hears them, and he shows up. So Isaiah 63 says, Who is this who is coming from Eden? That's Moab. That's Jordan. Who is this who is coming from Moab? Whose dried garments from Basra, another reference to that area near Petra. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have treaded the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one will be with me. For I will trodden them in my anger and trample them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And we find here... In Isaiah chapter 63, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the nations of the world have now gathered in the valley of Megiddo, and uh, they are setting their sights to actually come and make war against the Lord. That's, uh, Psalm 2 is all about that. Uh, why do the nations rage and they plot this crazy thing? He in heaven is going to laugh. You're going to fight against God? And uh, that's exactly now where when they call out, help, Lord, Isaiah 63 is the Lord showing up and taking care of those armies that have been gathered in uh, the valley, valley of Armageddon. Now, it's interesting in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, 
it tells us that the blood from this war will rise up to a horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. 1,600 furlongs happens to be 174 miles. I'm going to put something up on the screen right now that shows you from up in the north by Megiddo. That's called Megiddo after the Battle of Armageddon. If you go from Megiddo, the distance from that spot to Petra is exactly 1,600 furlongs. And that is an amazing coincidence to me, to the mile. And so that's the length of this battle. You know, it's sort of hard for my mind to wrap around that much blood. And it might just be in some areas that you have that much bloodshed. But you have to imagine the nations of the world, we're told in Revelation 16, are gathered together for this great battle. But that's exactly the whole length. And the interesting part is, it ends up in Petra, and it begins in Megiddo. And when we take people to Mount Carmel, you you have this vast vista of what um, Alexander the Great said is the greatest battlefield that's ever been created in the world. And it extends that distance. And this is where the armies of the world are going to be gathered together. Now, I need you to turn back to Zechariah chapter 14 one more time. You should have it because we were there just just a bit ago. Now tells us after he fights this battle, who is this coming back from Basra? It was all covered with blood. That's the Lord. But notice where he's coming from. But we know that the Bible teaches that he returns to the Mount of Olives. So I'm giving you the chronology, the order of events. So he's returning from Basra, covered with with blood, because he's taken care and protected the remnant that was there. Now we read in chapter 14, verse 3, says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Okay, that has taken place. Now what's interjected in here is Isaiah 63 says he's coming back from Baza. But then, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two at that time from east to west, making a very, very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half towards the south. Then you shall... Flee through my mountain valleys, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee, as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. There's going to be a great earthquake uh, that takes place in Jerusalem. And it will come to pass in that day that there will be no night. The light will be diminished. It will be one day which is known to the Lord. I guess I'll just uh, read it there because it's the beginning of uh, the millennial kingdom. And the reason we know that is, if you go down to verse 8, that it says the, the waters will flow from the temple in Jerusalem, half towards the east and the other half towards the western sea, and the waters there will be healed. The Dead Sea is going to be healed, and it'll be a place, we're told, for for literally the spreading of the nets. So the kingdom now will have finally come. All right, Revelation chapter 16. That's pretty much the scenario of events. 
Here's my closing question for you as we make our way through the Bible. Here we have five verses that add such detail when you're able to piece it all together. What are the probability factors of this not happening? It's going to happen. And what I wanted you to turn to that I'm just going to quote is uh, Isaiah 14, verses 26 and 27. This is what the Lord says about his judgments concerning Moab. He says, This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth, and this is at the hand that is stretched out over the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed it. And who's going to annul it? Who's going to stop this from happening if the Lord says it's going to happen? He has stretched it out. Is there anybody that's going to turn it around and make it not happen? Everything that we just went through this morning, there's no way that this cannot take place. Now, in light of that, if you're in Revelation 16, um, I find this very interesting verse because the verse before the final pronouncement on the battle of Armageddon, we have verse 15. The reason it's unique, how many of you here this morning have red-letter Bibles? Then you're going to get it for those who don't have red-letter Bibles this morning. There has been no red letters. That's Jesus speaking directly to the church since chapter 2 and 3. Beginning with chapter 4, it's all black. Until you get to verse 15 of chapter 16, because in the middle, right before the battle of Armageddon, begins, and that's basically been our study this morning. He has something to say to you and I, and this is how I kind of like to wind it up this morning. So what what should we be doing? Well, he says in verse 15, it's sort of a pause right before he pronounces the battle of Armageddon. And he says, I want to talk to you. Church, listen up. I want to talk to you. Red letter time. Behold, I'm coming. Somebody want to say amen to that? Behold, I'm coming. Like a thief, two will be in a bed, one will be taken, one will be left. Two will be working their jobs, one will be taken, one will be left. Just like that. I wish it would happen before this Bible study was over. Amen? We're not going to the Super Bowl. I don't care. (laughs) And then verse 16, after he's got our attention, I'm coming of, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walks and they see his shame. Basically, basically this game. Don't give up. Don't think about turning around. Look at the finish line. Look at the way the world is. These things are coming together. And just be wise. Be prudent. Pray for perseverance. Pray for endurance. Pray for boldness, not to back down on any of this stuff. Why? Because it can't be annulled. It can't be changed. Nothing's going to stop it from happening. So be bold about presenting it. Prophecy is one of the greatest tools we have because we know what is going to take place. Then there's this exhortation to you and I. Watch your P's and Q's. Um, Keep yourself unspotted from the world. And then the next verse, and then he gets back to the subject after that break. And they gather them together in a place that's called in the Hebrew, Arma. And we have the end of this last bold judgment, and that is the end 
of the seven-year tribulation period. Chapter 17 and 18 is just detail. But it ends, that seven-year period of time ends right here. Because then you have chapter 19 in the second coming of Jesus. Thousand-year millennial reign. You know, in Isaiah chapter 63, um, I did some research on the Battle of Hymn of the Republic. Because it is Isaiah chapter 63. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It was written in 1861. And um, it was written by a gal named Julie Ward Howe, H-O-W-E. And, um, you know, most of it is really good. But it's, it was really written to link God's future judgment with the Civil War. And I thought about this, and I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to Eric about possibly working this into, into uh, the message. And then I forgot about it, and I just let it go. So he was up putting songs together in the office yesterday, and I didn't even know he was up there. I just walked by, and he goes, oh, you're here. And he says, yeah, come on in. He says, is it okay if we do this song on Sunday? He handed me the battle hymn of the Republic. <laughs> and I said, I was going to call you and ask you to do some research on this, but I got busy with other things, and I just thought, no, I'm just going to let it go. But I just think this is the Lord. And he says, you know, I've been working, working on it. And he says, most of the, the, the lyrics are really, really good, but some of it gets a little political. So um, this song right here, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. She really can't say that. But you know who can? Isaiah can. He's the one who prophesied it. He's the one who wrote it down. And um, it's a song that has to do with something that is yet future. But it's the battle hymn of our republic. My, 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 how far we've gotten away from that. But it's still our hope. Amen? So why don't we uh, close with word uh, prayer this morning? And we'll go out singing that tune. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning as we make our way through the scriptures. Lord, we're we're getting it. We're understanding that in one verse, you can have local history being fulfilled. And at the same time, laying the foundation in detail to such a degree that you get into even the amount of people that will be involved with it. What it does for us, Jesus, is it gives us a great confidence that you have prepared a place for us, that this place here is temporal, and that we are, as it says in Colossians 3, 1, if we're born again, then we're to set our sights on the things that are above where you are. Lord, help us refocus again this Sunday morning, and help us, Lord, seek first your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, all God's people said, amen.